wanted to maybe suggest for us to just start with um, just appreciating that we exist and um, and and if you can, you know, really like cast your mind out to have a sense. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to do this, but like how vast this universe is, and 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 like thusly, so not to be freaky, but and thusly have an appreciation of um, that that you exist with your particularities, that I exist that we actually are are living beings. Somehow this universe has created the situation of, of us existing. It is miraculous. You know, like what are the chances? You know, so much in the material, even just of our solar system, is not particularly organic. You know, not doesn't lend itself to squishy human consciousness like what happened <laughs> and and really like really i don't even i don't mean it in an abstract way like just this appreciation of oh my gosh we we exist and then also and then and now and in that so like here's this vast universe I don't know. I, I can feel my experience actually in the brief time I've lived in New York is how um, it can make you, it can do a small ending thing to your mind. Cause I don't know why actually, maybe it's just adaptive. And, and then sometimes I'm like, Oh wait, like everything else is still out there. <laughs> it's all not just right here. And it's, it's not all like this, you know, but in the vast world, the possibility we all are here right now. And um, and to actually really appreciate that too. Like, what is that? What happened? What are, what are the conditions? And then to ask each of us to take a few moments to, to actually, not to answer the question, but to open to the question, like, what did bring me here today? And, and how wide can I keep that? question that inquiry how many of the millions of variables can you know which are the ones i can see <clears throat> what 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 are you here for i was thinking about this earlier today and i I could see some of the some of the ones that brought me here I like like the dharma and like thinking about all of you like it'd be you know probably be annoying <laughs> if there was no teacher but fine you know it would work out okay Some of them are like um are are kind of mundane or I don't even you know or like uh, well I said I would <laughs> I don't want to be flaky um, yeah, senses of obligation, of responsibility. But there's then there's like a million others, you know. There's a million other like what are the things that that in this world, in this time, in this culture, in this country, in this city, make it possible that what each one of us has chosen to do today is this. 
And even if it's, even if we do this enough that it feels sort of mundane, step back from it and appreciate that. It's an unusual thing to do, to make space for quiet, to make space for the Dharma, to make space for one another. I, I, I think a lot about Sangha. Is there anyone that this is their first time doing like a one-day retreat? Oh. Or you're all clustered. <laughs> well, may you feel supported over there. Um, although talking to a few of you, I know this that you've encountered other practices. Um <laughs> But in the but just to say in 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 most in all I think probably in all schools of Buddhism there's a principle of the triple treasure the three jewels the three the three most precious deepest elements and in our tradition we take refuge in them we talk about taking refuge in the triple treasure the Buddha the Dharma and the Sangha and in fact when we receive the precepts refuge in those three things in each of those three things is a precept like a guiding principle and and it just is so uh frequent in talking with people about their practice how um buddha and dharma we like those <laughs> sangha is a little more challenging and in the years i feel you know the great gift of I, I I can't I don't know what made it possible that in my early 20s I kind of crawled into a Zen center I actually do know I mean I can see some of the variables trying to save my life was one of them and, and just an enormous amount of pain was another one but um I feel so lucky that I got to spend a lot of time in lots of sanghas and one of the things I can I can offer is it's the hardest refuge. It's the hardest treasure to receive. And it is essential. Um, the most complex and the most um, maturing. And that's saying something, you know, because Buddha is complex and so is Dharma. <laughs> One of, one of my favorite jobs I've had in my life was working with autistic children and um, learning about what it, the experience was for people who are autistic and um, hearing some very some folks who um, are autistic and then able to express what their experience was. I, I remember often hearing this thing of like, you know, other people are just so unpredictable. <laughs> so that's why for, for people who are, my experience of people who are autistic is they're just extremely sensitive insensitive like almost like with superpowers and um, and so other human beings are tricky because they're always you never know quite what they're going to do they don't actually we don't really follow patterns you know <clears throat> and i think about that often when i think about how sangha is challenging because um it's made up of humans and, and other beings I revisited this. So, so in thinking about Sangha and wanting to actually, I'll confess, I want to encourage us in Sangha. I want to encourage us to Sangha. 
I was remembering this article, and it's an article, maybe it was a talk originally, um, that Sebene Selassie gave in 2014, so a long time ago now. I think at the Asakya Dita, which is a gathering of Buddhist women, called Sangha is a Verb. I really recommend reading it. You can find it online. And I, and I love that. Sangha, sangha, is a, um, sangha is a verb. Sangha is a commitment we make. Sangha is us, you know, and our, and our I want to say efforting. <laughs> but someone reminded me this morning that that word's not always helpful. Our engagement, our practice, our, um, our life, actually. And, and our life is a you know, to life is a verb, to be is a verb. In that article, she, she talks about um, a course that she was helping to lead at the uh, New York Insight community that was called Creating Beloved Community. And um, it was working, particularly working around differences of, of race and racial conditioning in their sangha. Sounded like a neat effort and um she was saying you know, martin luther king is credited with this a conception of beloved community and he says um, about that our goal is to create a beloved community and this will require qualitative change in our souls as well as quantitative change in our lives and i really to me, Sangha is a place where this a vision of beloved community, meaning like community where everyone experiences a genuine sense of belonging and refuge. It, we had like Sangha is a place where that it, it's possible. It's not always happening, but the conditions and the the variables are there where it might happen. And it maybe does happen for moments. And, it, and then it doesn't happen. And I was thinking about this qualitative change. That, that, so so we, could, we could think of Dharma places or, or Sanghas as places like, I'm going to go there and kind of get something. And then we can do, and we do, most, most of us do that for a while. I'm going to go there and I'm going to get something. And then eventually it's like, starts to turn around and it's like, oh, I, oh, I am this. Oh, like we are this. We are, we create what this is. And actually that's the thing I'm going to get. It's not what I came for. <laughs> it's not what I expected. But that's the thing I'm going to get is that eventually I understand um, for the Dharma and the Buddha and to exist in the world, I have to be willing to be Sangha and care for it. And, and then I'm in an environment where, you know, I kind of like this about Dharma centers. It's self-selecting. Nobody has to come here, you know. So it's great. People sometimes are like, well, that's too Buddhist. I'm like, well, whatever. They came to a Buddhist place. <laughs> like, it's okay. You know, we don't have to hold back. And I think in Sangha, we don't have to hold back in the possibility of being together differently than many of and many and most of the ways that we each have been conditioned to be together. 
and and it's okay to try even though you know it's dangerous and perilous it's all right to try because every because by coming through the door there's somewhat of a buy-in by everybody to try something different and and i think we should not miss that opportunity to be together differently to be together in a qualitative change of how we are together <clears throat> and I've been thinking about that, and a couple of words have come to mind. The first one was to be together in healing how we are together. And I, and I feel that pretty strongly, that one of the things we can do in Sangha, and one of the things practice, Dharma practice supports us in, is healing how we are interpersonally. And that takes a lot of work and patience, and time. And another piece, I think, of this qualitative difference is being together in reverence. And that word in particular has just been kind of ringing through me for a couple of days. Yeah, like, can we, can we come together and enact reverence? And one of the things I think that supports that possibility, both healing and reverence and change, is slowing down. So this is one thing I, I want to ask of us in Sangha, that we give ourselves and one another permission to slow down, to be, so that, so that we can, um, so that there's enough room so that we can line up our, our exchanges with one another and our, even what our thinking in our own mind more with our intention and more with our heart than moving quickly from a familiar place of uh, separation. Yeah, when I was thinking about this, like being together differently, well, differently than what? And then I've just been, over the past couple months, really, actually, like looking around into what have I been taught about other people? You know, how have I been social for myself? And we can each do this. Like, what have I been taught about other people? One of the things um, I can see that I've been taught is to always expect a little threat. A little bit, you know, not, not, like, not necessarily a big threat, although Although some, sometimes the conditioning is expect a big threat, expect a, a mortal threat, you know. But expect a little threat. <laughs> expect that you'll be judged. This is one I've gotten. I don't know if you have this one. Expect that, and not only will you be judged, you'll be judged harshly. Expect that there's competition. Expect that, expect that other people are, um, you don't know. You know, <laughs> and so you better be wary. Actually, that whole line of thinking came about because <clears throat> uh, I'm very happy to be in New York. And I also try to not cut off the pain of uh, leaving where we left, you know, grieving where I used to live. I'm happy to have left. <laughs> There's still grief. At this time of year, um, where I used to live in Sonoma County is it's the only green time of year, actually. It's the only time that there's actually rain. So it gets really green. And then there are these whole fields full of oxalis or mustard 
this yellow, bright yellow flower. So it gets really colorful. The sky gets really blue. There's these green hills and then these like yellow swaths. And I've been like, ah, I miss it. I miss that. I miss smelling the soil actually lately. I've been like, I miss the smell of dirt. Um, but then I've been thinking about what's beautiful here. And I realized like, oh, I wasn't conditioned to think these things are beautiful, but they are like, you know, it's been warm. It's so sweet. It's like the bulbs are coming up and the people are coming up <laughs> out of the buildings into the, into the shared spaces. You know, it gets to be like 60 degrees and there's like a critical, more critical mass of humans. And there we are sharing space together. And actually that's really beautiful. It's super beautiful to me that we are sharing space as human beings. But then I realized, oh, I was conditioned to think that what's good anyway, I don't know, beautiful, but like what the, what the aim was, get your own house and your private property with a yard and a thing. And I've been wondering about that. And then I, I was standing with my son waiting in a medical office and there was a TV happening and all the advertisements showed suburban homes with yards. And I was like, ha ha ha, see? <laughs> They are brainwashing us. And so that like, there's this message, that's good, that's good, that's good. These people have nice houses, they're clean, they have yards, they're clean. You know, instead of like, yeah, there's some garbage on the sidewalk and, but, but you know, and, and it's not private, but that's actually beautiful. And appreciating that. And, and so then I was wondering like, well, what would society be like if we were, I mean, you know, maybe some of you are. Oh, that'd be so great. I hope it's true. But if we weren't conditioned with so much uh, feeling of threat and otherness and competition and expecting judgment, what if um, when we saw there, people were like, oh, great. You know, oh, there's other people. This is great. <laughs> this is just as nourishing as a walk in a pristine woods. And I've just been wondering if, if I can shape myself to make that possible. <laughs> Re redo that conditioning a little bit so that we could, so that, and, and, it, and it, I think it's possible. When I actually look at my lived experience living in the city, what I mostly see, like at a much greater portion is people being kind and decent and attentive to one another, at least in my neighborhood. It's lovely. <laughs> and every time I notice that, I'm like, oh, well, I must be noticing that because I was told something else. You know? So I want to I want to suggest that we um, that we utilize Sangha as a place to experiment with being together differently when we can. You know, it's not always available. And depending on our what's happened to us, trusting other people is not, is comes and goes, you know. So be compassionate with that reality. But using, utilizing this, this space when we come together as a place to experiment with, um, with refuge as an as a active engagement in other people, you know. I can acknowledge, like I can remember when I lived in the monastery, 
it was like I remember I could I, the sensation is super vivid for me even now I basically just needed to get through the people to get to my cushion and then I got on my cushion and now I'm in refuge you know that was I'm facing the wall it's 40 minutes they can't ask me to do anything <laughs> but I wonder about you know in engaging the practice of refuge all the way to the cushion and then as we move away and really caring for one another you know and making that really like a super high value um last week this week the week before a week and a half ago or so there was a talk on there was the first of this series on abolition interfaith dialogue on, on abolition that Peter um, Tanaka has organized and father Mark and I got to kind of share what's the relationship between our faith traditions and abolition and leading up to that I spent a lot of time actually like all the I'm all I'm always trying to take in more about abolition because I feel like it's um actually because I feel like it's that it's being in the world differently all the abolitionists I, I have heard from and learned from are there, the effort is, can we, can we be together differently? Can we be together? Can we create society differently, please? You know, one where er everyone is actually valued. Can that be the guiding principle? And then create our structures and our systems with this as the central thing. And, um, but, but just taking in a number of those voices, one of the things I, I was hearing over and over again was um, one of the videos, and actually I think, I think this went out into the Sangha, so you may have easy access to this if you wanna look at it. <clears throat> it's called Everyday Practices of Transformative Justice. And it's all these amazing people that are on the front, on the forefront and the leading the, nope, I'm not gonna say that, leading the charge. Um, leading the, the revolution of transformative justice, which is a abolition, uh, an abolitionist system or way of being. And what, and what they keep saying is, yes, we're talking about like total transformation of society. How do we do that? One of the ways we do that is like right here all the time. Or can we start with um, learning, several people say, learning to make a good apology? Can we start with caring for the harm and violence that exists even between, even with our most beloved and trusted people? Can we start with naming our own hurt and pain and finding a way to skillfully share that with the people near us who have harmed us, even when they don't mean to? So that we, so that as human beings, we start to build a capacity to be together differently on, I don't want to say small, it's not small, but on like an intimate level. So that then as we move out into interpersonal, communal, societal levels, we have an orientation of a different way, which is to care for the harm. Um, this activist, Mia Mingus, was just so brilliant. 
human uh, was saying, you know, so so often what happens um, when there's when when some great harm has happened, it's like there's been all these things that have led up to it. She said, like death by a thousand cuts, and and societally, her in her experience, we're only trained to respond once the person's like bleeding out, once there's a crisis, like a hemorrhaging. So she says, so what if we start? Uh, what should say? Rushing and dropping everything when there's only like two cuts, when there's only three or four? What if we start to really lift up early on in a harm cycle? Um, right there at the beginning, we really take that seriously. We really commit. And um, another uh, one of these brilliant um, revolutionaries, Priya Rai, talks about uh, the everyday block, building blocks of transformative justice. Yeah, so how do I say a good apology? How do I have a hard conversation? How can I be intentional? How I'm interacting with other, the other people right next to me. And then, and then when there's a big question, like do prisons actually serve society? There's an, a different orientation with which to answer that question that comes from valuing human life. And then it becomes really clear. No, it's not really helping. So some of this we could do, you know, in, in verbal exchange with each other, but I was also realizing how just in a one day sit, we're already being together differently. We've all, we've all agreed that a fair amount of silence is okay. We're not gonna get nervous about that, you know? I think in other social settings, if there were this many people around one another quietly, our training would be to anxiously um, say something, you know, about the weather maybe, <laughs> or something. Make, make light, make conversation. But so already here we've made space for quiet together. We've already agreed to um, that we're gonna move differently physically. We're gonna, we're gonna move slowly. We're gonna do, we're gonna do certain movements. We're gonna bow and, um, and really pay attention while we're doing that, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> we could, the opportunity is there. And, and that actually, uh, this was part of a conversation I had with Julia, actually, where she, we were, she was asking about how, we, how, how does Zen train people in compassion? And then offered like, oh, some of the ways that we even move um, actually train the body to care for things. I really miss Oriyoki practice, I have to say. For those who have done that and for those who haven't, Oriyoki practice is it's like the formal ceremony of eating together. And um, when, we, when we do it formally in a Zen setting, it's, it's at first it's awful actually. <laughs> There's just too much stuff to remember. You've got all these bowls and you have to wrap them up in certain ways. And it's like, I remember just being like, <laughs> this is terrible. But eventually 
And one of the gifts of living in the monastery was we we did that. That's how you ate three times a day. <laughs> and um, and we serve one another. It's a, it's actually it's a ceremony. If we you know like last week we were talking about like what are what's the underneath thing. So in Orioki, it's actually a ceremony of offering nourishment to Buddha and receiving nourishment as Buddha. And even if nobody ever said that to you, like if you've done Orioki, maybe you can feel that. Like it's a, the, the, when in the monastery where I live, there's a, a meal board and in traditional monasteries, there's, a, there's a, just a strip of wood. It doesn't look any different than the other ones, but it's, you learn to treat it differently because it's actually an altar. And when the food is given to the person, it's, it's an offering to an altar, to a Buddha. And then, then if you're eating, you have to be the Buddha <laughs> receiving the food. Some serious stuff. But that these forms, so, and then when we hold our bowls, we, we hold them carefully and we move slowly. Although actually in Oriyoki, you have to eat like in three minutes. <laughs> like where's the mindful eating i'm like it's it's not there no it is but but it you know but other parts of the ceremony are and and even that too we have to quickly receive the offering as buddha <laughs> and and we can we can think that um oh you know i'm just i signed up to do the zen thing so today so i'll do them or we could or we could have a, another a different mind which is like maybe everything that's happening today can help shape the world differently that's another possibility and help shape us differently so that we in turn shape the world differently um, and that we come from a place of how we're connected that that's the essential nugget you know of where we move from versus we come from a place of the delusion of being separated from each other and and possibly at threat from one another and that's really hard to do so i don't i don't mean to say it like it's like this should be happening because there's a huge moment, amount of momentum that go way beyond our lifetimes even. And then there's plenty for each of us, even acknowledging that each of us are shaped differently because we are. There's so much momentum. There's so much potency to the teaching that says we're separate and, um, and we should watch out. And sometimes we need to. So it's not like, oh, let's do this. Trust each other, go, you know, but more like let's orient that way. Let's orient that with that possibility. Let's just start imagining. Um, when I was, oh, another thing I encountered this week that was so supportive for my heart was um, these teachings from Paula Arai, who, is a Buddhist scholar. Um, have, people, have people heard of Paula's work? She wrote a book called Bringing Zen Home. Oh, I love her. <laughs> Paula's an amazing scholar um, who, um, one of, one of her, her 
primary studies in the book, Bringing Zen Home, she's talking about she was studying um, as a religious studies professor. Um, she also lived and trained in um, at the Nisoto, so the women's monastery in Japan, and then met women who practiced there. Um, and so she's studying particularly Japanese women who have ritual, who have created rituals and ceremonies in their homes. So this is not a strain. This is an ancient strain of tradition. It's not one that's lifted up in monastic settings. They're mostly lay people. Um, and, and they have received, like, they're part of a tradition, but it just not, hasn't been very lifted up, particularly not in the West. And um, they, they have a whole, like, a whole range of healing practices and ways of responding to the pain in the world, like loss, like child loss, like loss in general, like grieving, like impermanence. And, and in the book, um, Paula talks about the 10 principles of healing. And I'll just read them because they're inspiring, not because I could do any of them justice, but just so you hear this idea that she's working with. Um, experiencing interrelatedness. We actually have to have, and having a personal lived experience of that. Living body-mind. So engaging that so this is where meditation practice helps like aligning our awareness up with our body engaging in rituals nurturing the self enjoying life creating beauty cultivating gratitude accepting reality as it is and then this one that's just been so resonant for me expanding perspective and then embodying compassion. So this is like how we heal. And at the very beginning of the book is a quote from a woman named Umemura, who's one of the women that she interviewed. And she says, I know I am healed when I am kind. And I feel like that's a really orienting thing to say. In the places in our life where we can't be kind with ourselves and with other people, that can wake us up to, oh, there's something not healed. There's something that is, try is needing to heal. But when I can be kind, I'm, I'm actually in a state of being healed, not healing outwardly, but me being healed. When I have that kindness to offer, I, I uh, once did a retreat with a Tibetan teacher named Kanva Rinpoche. She's a, um, so she's a Rinpoche, which means she's a reincarnated teacher. She's recognized as a reincarnated teacher. And the, the one that she is is a Daikini, which means she's a semi-wrathful deity. <laughs> I probably may have mentioned her before because I think she's just so awesome. Because you, you know, she's a semi-wrathful deity. So daikinis are semi-wrathful deities. Um, I don't know. I don't know a lot about the system. There's probably people here who have studied more in the Tibetan tradition. But my understanding is, um, these are these are embodiments of teachers in the world who, who, you know, they show up in human bodies to help us suffering humans 
um, by keeping a semi-wrathful edge to what they're offering, like, you know, <laughs> there's fire, you know, there's clarity. It's, it's compassion-based wrathfulness, you know, if you can imagine. And I think on the first day of that retreat, she, she like paused for a second and she's like, are you getting kinder? Are you? Because if you're not, you need a new teacher. She's like, I'm sure your teachers are fine, but that's the measure, you know? Find a new one if it's not working. And, and I think, you know, there, so there's a semi-wrathful deity <laughs> saying um, kindness is what is called for here, you know? It is like what we're aiming toward in the Dharma. And so we can, we can take that offering and be diligent about it. And, and I would say with this encouragement coming from other places, like diligently apply it to yourself, to ourselves. Make that a practice engagement over and over again. You know, start there. There's another Tibetan training, the, the Lojong training, which is a system of training and compassion. And the first of the 50 slogans is train in the preliminaries. And what that means is like ground yourself in, in practice. Ground yourself in your intention over and over again. If you want to be compassionate in this world, every time, again, ground yourself here. Ground in the orientation toward radical kindness that maybe we haven't really been given. Just see where you can find it available. The last thing I want to do is um, share a poem that um, Father Mark shared. So Father Mark is the pastor at Christ Church, which is the building where we are. Um, and last Sunday, he did a ceremony where he was, I'm sorry, there's a word for it that I'm not remembering. But the, but the ceremony is to confer him as the tenured pastor of this church. And it takes years before that happens. So he's been here for a few years and now it's like, okay, the community and the wider community is like lifting you up to be the entrusted. And in this, he, he shared this poem and actually he, there's some of them posted downstairs. I guess he regularly shares poems and then posts them for people to take with them. So there might be some there. Um, it's a poem by William Stafford called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. And following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike. 
And as elephants parade holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel and maybe the root of all cruelty to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. I feel that that the pattern that others made maybe didn't teach us about the reverence that's required for waking up. But we can endeavor together. In, in that, in cultivating that reverence and that clarity, like, oh yeah, that's where I'm coming from in the midst of the darkness to orient. Thank you. May our intention Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.